Pro teams have millions to spend, and they don't always spend them wisely. But when it comes to a great shave, you don't have to shell out tons of cash. Harry's saw customers getting ripped off by the shaving industry, with overpriced, underperforming products, and decided to do something better. They found their own way to make beautifully designed razors for a fraction of the price of the other big brands, so you never wonder if you overpaid. Harry's shaving products look great, and the weighted handle makes shaving feel great too. I like to keep my beard neat, and Harry's always leaves me with a smooth yet crisp shave. Harry's quality is top-notch, thanks to German-engineered blades made in their own factory that stay sharp longer. You can get a five-blade razor, weighted handle, foaming shave gel, and a travel cover for just three bucks at harrys.com slash bluewire. And Harry's has the highest customer satisfaction in the shaving industry, plus a convenient subscription option that you can cancel at any time. Getting the best doesn't mean spending the most when you shave with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com slash bluewire. That's harrys.com slash bluewire for a $3 trial set. Episode 55 of the Helipod is here. Yeah, hard to believe we are uh, just over a year old as of this moment. Before today's guest, I want to say happy trails to Alex Smith. He announced his retirement this week. Talked to Jacksonville, apparently, about reuniting with Urban Meyer and mentoring Trevor Lawrence, but he decided it was time to call it a career. After 16 years, his story has been well-documented. He came back from that gruesome leg injury that led to a life-threatening infection and 17 surgeries before they finally got it right. He battled his way back for Washington. He started six games this year. He went five and one, played with drop foot, 10 different iterations of braces, helped Washington get to the playoffs before he had to miss the last few games with a bone bruise. I, I was lucky enough to call his first start in Detroit against the Lions. I did an event with him a couple of months ago, so I've had a chance to chat with Alex a few times. And he told me that when I said, why, why did you want to come back at all? It just didn't make any sense to a lot of people. You had all the money you could possibly want. You had a great family. Why not just walk away with your health intact? And he just said that he felt like coming back and playing in a game was something that he needed to prove to himself that he could do and would do. And he felt like it would make the rest of his life better because of it. And I, I hope it will. He walks away 27th all time in career passing yards. And as the NFL comeback player of the year, happy trails and good luck to Alex Smith. Our guest today, another remarkable redemption story. It is Ryan Leaf, former number two overall pick right behind Peyton Manning in that 1998 NFL draft. We're going to get Ryan's take on this year's crop of quarterbacks and then get into his life and career. And man, what a ride it has been. He lasted four years in the NFL due in part to an injury, but mostly because of attitude. He told me during the podcast that he went from bouncing a check for $14 at Pizza Hut to a multimillionaire in the span of a couple of weeks after he was drafted. And he just was not ready for the spotlight. And when he retired, it was a dark, dark path that he went down in his mid-20s. Uh, depression hit him hard. Addiction. Uh, he was robbing houses. And eventually, he went to prison for almost three years. We get into all of it with Ryan. It was real. It was raw. He talks about 
what he learned from his recent arrest about a year ago for domestic battery and, and what he's doing right now. Uh, he's very busy. He's uh, involved in several interesting projects. We both guest hosted Rich Eisen's show a couple of weeks ago, and that kind of brought him back into my mind. And I really just wanted to catch up with him and have him tell his story. He's doing so many good things right now in terms of giving back to people very involved uh, with helping other people who have gone through the same issues and things that he has throughout his career. Uh, great conversation with Ryan Leaf. I thoroughly enjoyed it, and hopefully you will too. The Helipod starts right now. I want to say as promised, here's Ryan Leaf, because I was talking to somebody at some point in time. I said, Ryan Leaf is coming on the show, and he's finally here. Uh, and but Oh, by the way, this is like multimedia Ryan Leaf these days. He has his own live show that airs on YouTube on Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays. You can hear, us on, hear him on uh, Sirius XM Radio as well. W Ryan, welcome, buddy. Thank you very much for having me, bud. That's, uh, that's, yeah, multimedia, that makes me laugh. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's uh, it's been a long time coming. You and I both uh, filled in on Eisen's show a few weeks ago. You did a great job. Uh, story time was just fantastic because I went back and rewatched some of those clips getting ready for this interview. But let's start with the draft because right. this 23 is 23 years ago yesterday, by the way. That that long? Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. You're making me feel old, brother. All right, well, I feel old. So. <laughs> well, you got you got a bunch of young bucks this year. For all these quarterback thirsty teams out there, I, I think we're going to see four guys go in the top seven or eight. Uh, you could see five go in the top ten. Listen, Trevor Lawrence is the guy. We know he's going number one to Jacksonville. Who's the second best quarterback in this draft? Well, I, I differ on this than than a lot of people. I think Justin Fields has been and continues to be. Uh, you know, you know he looked. Uh, every bit as good as if not better than Trevor Lawrence in that national semifinal this year. And for a guy that I, I you know, was mediocre at best during the season, you know, that COVID shortened season gave him trouble, but they finally kind of hit their rhythm in that semifinal game. And he looked exactly uh, who everybody anticipated him to look. So I, I don't know this for a fact. I just, there's a feeling that uh, after you watch his film and you talk to him and you speak to the people around him and, and have an understanding of, of what kind of young man and football player he is. Don't be surprised if you hear the commissioner walk up there with the second pick in the draft and, and read off Justin Fields' name. So that brings me to my next question. Let's assume that, that it, that doesn't happen. Let's assume Zach Wilson goes. If you're I, San I, I, Yeah, I expect that. To be, yeah. To be and, and so if that happens and you're San Francisco sitting there at three and you trade up to get a quarterback and all things seem to be pointing to, Mac Jones, you would absolutely, if you're in John Lynch's position and Kyle Shanahan's position, go Justin Fields over Mac Jones. Well, if I'm Mac Jones, I'm, I'm loving that. If I'm Justin Fields, I'm hoping I don't get drafted by the New York Jets, right? If I'm anybody, I hope I don't get drafted by the New York Jets, right? And therefore, I can go to San Francisco and play for somebody like Kyle Shanahan. I know Robert Sala is, is new and on the scene, but Coach Broyles <laughs> – was was awesome and you know it's systemic in new york i'm sorry it's just you've had first rounders from mark sanchez to take ufc championship games all he's known for is the butt fumble there which is absurd it's became like a like a caricature sam darnold i thought was the number one overall pick that year he goes number three to the jets i thought they got a steal and they just absolutely sabotaged his career 
I feel for anybody who ends up in that uh, in that green and white uni in, in New York. So if that's the way it goes, and I'm San Francisco, and I know Jimmy Garoppolo is going to be the guy this year, and if he stays healthy, right? If he stays healthy 16 games, which he's done one time with the 49ers, they went to the Super Bowl, okay? But if he doesn't, they need a guy that can, can step in, and I think all three guys. I have no idea who's going number three. They haven't tipped their hand at all. Uh, Mac Jones, they, they moved up to get somebody. Trey Lance could be a guy, could be a project that fits into a mold for what Shanahan likes to do um, and sit behind Garoppolo for a year or two or however that needs to be. Because don't forget, you know, Trey Lance has only played 12 games, only started 12 games in his career. And that's, that is not a lot of snaps. Yeah. Is there, I, I'm kind of enamored by, by Trey Lance. And as, as you know, man, it's a 50, 50 hit rate on first round quarterbacks, right? So five guys go in the top it's 10. Less than that. Yeah. I mean, two of them are going to hit. So <laughs> I don't that. know. It's, it's a, it's a tough decision for these guys, but to me, the upside on Trey Lance is just so great that you almost seemingly have to make that pick. If you have a, a shot to get him uh, in picks five through 10, Kyle Trask, Davis Mills, Kellen Mond. Have you had a chance to look at any of those guys? That's kind of that second tier, right? The, the, the guys after day one. Yeah. And, and, and for me, it's Davis Mills. In fact, Davis Mills is in my top five. Really? So, uh, yeah, he, uh, he has every bit of the talent uh, as Andrew Luck did. In fact, that's a big reason why he was so, so highly sought after. He hasn't got a lot of snaps because of injuries and KJ Costello found a way to just kind of keep, keep him at bay at Stanford. And then his decision to, to leave early, I really was hoping he'd come back. But I really think a team's going to trade up and get him late in the first round so they can get that fifth-year option uh, for him, similar to what uh, the Ravens did with Lamar Jackson a few years back where they stepped up into the first round, got him there at pick number 32, which allowed them for that fifth-year option, which is a big deal when you're dealing with quarterbacks. When this time of the year rolls around, how, how long did it take you to get to the point where you enjoyed draft time again with all that you've gone through, all the ebbs and flows? Yeah, a long, long time, right? I mean, and watching football in the fall, it was just a toxic feeling. You know, I just, you know, every April, of course, the conversation comes up and then, you know, it's, you know, the biggest bust list that, that come out and, you know, don't, don't mess up and draft. I'm, I'm not, it, it didn't bother me so much with that stuff. What bothered me, I think a lot was like, like, you know, people who are coming on the scene now in terms of covering the draft or who are younger, they're like, Boy, that was a huge mistake. What a terrible mistake. But no one saw it as that, right? I was, I was as talented, if not more talented than any other quarterback at the time. And I just, I just didn't get it done when I got to the next level. You know, it wasn't like this giant mistake you made because it isn't. You, you go with the, with the facts and the evidence you were given and what they were going off of was a tremendous athlete with a great upside and in a, in a, in a wonderful college career. Right. So I think that was more of a, and I started pushing that down deep, like you're just kind of a piece of shit, Ryan, you know? And so every April that comes along, uh, I would go, Oh, okay. I am a terrible football player and I am an awful human being. So that's, that's what pushed it deeper, deeper and deeper into depression for me. And finally, when there was an acceptance of like, no, no, I am like super, super uh successful uh i am the one percent of the one percent i got to experience something that no one will ever experience i think i saw an article today there's only been 727 uh 
quarterbacks ever drafted in the, in the NFL draft um, ever in the hundred years of football. So, you know, I, it's a, it's a small number that uh, you pick from that. I, I chose to look from in it from a different perspective. And once I was able to shift that and look at these young men who were getting to experience their dream, that that's kind of what it all became when I started making it about somebody else and watching these guys uh, live out their dream. Now I don't, necessarily like the format and what it's become you know a you walk up there and you hug a, a commissioner you'll never see again who who really probably could give two shits about you uh especially if you ever get into trouble or need help um in any way shape or form but he's more than happy to hug you in, in front of millions of people and 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 use that as propaganda but uh i, I love the fact that these kids because um, i think they are all kids even though they are young men are getting to experience and live a dream that so many of us wish we could have had when we were younger and not, not many, if any, get to experience it. What do you remember most about the pre-draft process, whether it be the combine or, or your pro day? I'm assuming you had a, you had a pro day as well as the combine, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, just kind of, I, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what it was. I don't know if it was worthwhile or not to do anything. Um, to be honest with you, I was going first or second. So it, it, it was a different time because Peyton and I, we had it sewed up. We had the highest grades, uh, I think, that had come along in some time. I, I can't, eight, almost like 8.5 or something like that were our grades. Uh, and that's just unheard of. I think Andrew Luck had an 8.7 or something like that. So it, it's just, it's just, it was unheard of. And we were going to go one or two. So it was kind of like, you know, we were kind of, we were calling the shots on, on how we were going to go about things. And in fact, we made it very clear that we weren't interest, really interested in going in, in Indianapolis. So we found out the night before uh, the draft that, that it was for sure going to be San Diego now. And that put us at ease and we were excited as a family. And I had a bunch of family there. I was asleep by like nine 30 the night before the draft, you know, we all showed up as a family. Um, you know, it went down the way we thought it was going to go down. I got on the, the Spanos's private jet with my father and flew cross country. It was just a surreal moment and exactly like, you know, you know, you'd think it would be in terms of all of a sudden now your life has completely changed. You know, you go from bouncing a check to Pizza Hut three weeks earlier to now being a millionaire. It's just, it's, it's crazy. Did you really bounce a check at Pizza Hut? Yeah. $13.65. The only reason I remember that because I went to buy a house like a year two in San Diego. And it like was a red flag on my mortgage thing. It was a, a re, you know, a return check to, to Pizza Hut in Pullman, Washington for like 1365. Oh my God. You yeah. know, anybody who's under 30, who's listening to this is like, what's a check? What, or what's, what a ba- yeah. what's a bounce check or what's a check? I don't yeah. understand. Yeah. Well, so I've heard a couple of different stories about you, you saying that you made it clear to Indy that you didn't want to go to Indy. What exactly did that mean? my agent just said, you know, Ryan, Ryan's prepared to kind of John Elway it through this process. You know, he, I mean, you have, you have two options. Um, You know, you have either one's going to be great. It sounds like Peyton wants to be number one overall pick more than anything. And Ryan thinks this is going to be picks one A and one B and he likes the West coast and he has family in San Diego and he played on the, he played in the pac 10 and, 
You know, I wasn't doing the proper due diligence and looking at Marshall Falk in the backfield and, you know, Marvin Harrison out on the perimeter, but instead looking at the, the money, the beaches, the babes, you know, the, which by the way, is not that abnormal, right. For a 22, 23 year old guy. I was 20. I just turned, uh, why I, I was just about to turn 22. I was 21. Wow. When I was drafted. So, so you get drafted, you go to San Diego and you're, you're feeling yourself a little bit, right? You're the number two overall pick, you know, big, you Mr. Big Nuts coming to town. Was there, <laughs> was there a wake up call for you at all early on in training camp or were you just the whole time thinking, Oh, I'm the shit. Let's go. Let's get this done. Yeah, no, there wasn't, um, you know, tr- training camp, you head into preseason. My first preseason game was against Steve Young and the 49ers and I dominate and I beat Steve Young. And I'm just like, you know, what, <laughs> What the hell? All right. This is easy. This is, this is the way we do it. All right. We get in the first game. We beat Buffalo at home. Um, we go on the road the next week to Tennessee and beat Steve McNair and Eddie George. And I'm 2-0. First quarterback to do that since 1983 and John Elway. And I'm, I didn't think it was easy. No. I mean, it was like I threw two picks in the Buffalo game. And, you know, I didn't throw a touchdown in the, in the Tennessee game. And we only had two uh, possessions in the first half of the Tennessee game. I'm like, what the hell? We get four possessions a game. I better be on my game and we better score points on those possessions or we're not going to, you know, we're not going to win games. It was so foreign to me to only have four possessions, you know, in a, in a whole football game almost. And, uh, and then, and then I hit the bus saw in, in Kansas city. I was sick in the hospital all week. I tried to play, played the worst game of my life. And it's not because of the fact that I played poorly, but it's how I, it's how I reacted to it. It's how I dealt with failure or the, or the, or the idea of failure in the face of the criticism, the media, all the things. Um, and I can honestly tell you at two and one uh, in my NFL career, my career ended. I played for four more years, but I don't remember another positive thing. It, it was because of how I reacted and dealt with that failure and just kept doubling down and built resentments and backed myself into a corner and fought my way out swinging. It was just, it was the epitome. Uh, if you want to document it, the epitome of how not to deal with a situation. Um, it really was. Was that the famous locker room incident with the reporter? It was after that first loss, right? Yeah. If you're, so if you're pinpointing a moment in time where Ryan Leaf's career unraveled, that that was the moment yep that was the moment and because once I acted out like that I got my my back up a little bit in terms of defenses and you know I was just incapable I didn't have the coping mechanisms Um, and and people had seen that before when things had gone difficult or bad or or when I seemingly failed growing up just the spotlight was never, never uh, what it was. Like the magnifying glass of being a professional athlete, in particular a starting quarterback in the NFL, is just is all consuming, and you can't you can't hide, right? I had media trucks just like following me around all over San Diego, parked out my house, parked out in front of my house. That made me angry, and I'll show you who who's in charge here, people. You know, I'll I'll be the one that intimidates you, and and it just doesn't work that way when you're battling the best defenses in the world every Sunday uh, and then the media and everybody else Sunday to Sunday, your central nervous system is just on tilt. And if you're not really good at 
you know, living life on life's terms, just because you're a great athlete doesn't mean you, you have good life skills or, or are a good person. And I hadn't developed any of those um, because I've been placed on a pedestal pretty damn early in my life where consequences weren't the same for me because I was just so good at what I did. I mean, I'm an only Montanan who's ever been drafted in the first round of the NFL draft. I mean, there's more first round draft picks in the Manning family than the whole state of Montana ever. So it's, it's, uh, I, there wasn't a trailblazer for me. I, I did it and I burnt, burnt bridges behind me and in front of me and everywhere. When you look back, was there somebody who was a champion for you in the organization? Somebody who, who pulled you aside and said, dude, this is not the way you handle it. Or were you in your mind too big for that? I don't really remember them doing that, but I know Junior Seau and Rodney Harrison definitely did. They cared about me. They both did. And, uh, you know, I, I saw, I saw that as weakness. I saw that like, you know, I've got this, you know, you kind of grow up in a, where I did in Montana and there's a cowboy culture and then you're in locker rooms your whole life. And I don't think you ever, you ever see another man actually go, Hey, I need some help here. Can you help me? I just, I don't think I'd ever seen that before or heard it. And so for me, asking for help um, was a weakness. It, it wasn't a strength. And I've certainly found that to be the case um, now. It wouldn't have mattered where you ended up, would it? If you had nope. ended up in Indianapolis or Dallas or New York, I mean, obviously everything would have been magnified even more in New York, but you, you were probably going to go down that path regardless based on the kind of mental state that you were in at that time. Yeah. Just, just, you know, I was a third, probably a 13 year old mature maturity wise, you know, had arrested development. Um, so, you know, the losing and in the fashion I did, uh, you know, expose those character defects even more. They may have been overshadowed or covered up more in Indianapolis because we'd have been more successful. I don't know. Peyton right. Manning's as good as they get, and they went three and thirteen. So, right. you know, I won three games my rookie year. That's the same amount as as Peyton did. Yet, uh, you know, and I didn't lead the the league in interceptions that year. He did. I don't know if I could have done that. I don't know if I would have been able to get up off the ground after leading the league in interceptions, um, I would have felt like such a failure. I just, I didn't see as failing as the opportunity to do it better the next time. He clearly did. I saw it as a black and white issue. That's just how I dealt with stuff and uh, in a, in a poor way of dealing with it, of course. So you're out of San Diego in a couple of years. Um, I think you're there three years total. You were hurt for one of those seasons. And then you go yep. Buc Bucks, Cowboys, Seattle and a short stop at each one of those places um figured out yeah figured out how to be a professional jim harbaugh my third year in in san diego he was my backup really kind of taught me how to be a professional um i hurt myself in that season three where i wrecked my throwing wrist pretty pretty badly where there's a there was a what it's called a scaphoid lunate disassociation in my wrist and what happens essentially is there's a ligament uh, that was detached and my wrist would just kind of pop in and out and dislocate. And so I was just never the, the talent I was. And you have to be, you have to be the talent you were. If you're carrying a bunch of baggage, you definitely have to be the talent that you were. So when I got to Tampa with Tony Udungi, I, you know, I figured out I would be a pro, loved my teammates. They loved my work ethic, everything like that. I just, I couldn't get it done on the field anymore. Right. Same thing in Dallas, great relationship with the Jones family, with Wade Wilson, my quarterback coach, I get up to Seattle, you know, same thing, just, you know, 
great relationships, but I also had a viewpoint of, um, you know, if I'm not the starting quarterback, then I'm not, then I'm, it's not worth it. Right. I probably could have backed up Matt Hasselbeck for, I don't know, 10 more years. I could have in the business of football, right. You can chase Daniel who made right. 40, $50 million. Uh, I could have done that. My pride wouldn't let me do it. It was, su- it was just like, I couldn't suck it up. Uh, and take the high road and just play football for a living. You know, I had to be the star. I'd always been the starter. And if I'm not, I'm a failure. That's the way I looked at it. And I just, <coughs> excuse me. And uh, I just walked into coach Holmgren's office and, and instead of telling him all the things I was going through, you know, mainly dealing with a bunch of depression, I, I couldn't get out of bed. I was sad all the time. And instead of telling him all that stuff and maybe getting some help, and getting a different perspective about, hey, you could play football for a living. Um, I just, I quit. I, I walked away. Thought I thought I had things that made you a success, money, power, and prestige. The prestige would have a little tarnish now because I wasn't no longer uh, in the NFL. But, uh, you know, I thought it was was everything that, that made you successful was in the palm of my hand still. So the number two pick, you last four years in the league, and then you're done at 24. Five? I was thinking I was like 27. 27. Okay. And then I think it was you were 28 when you went to that fight in Vegas, and that was the first time that, that you took Vicodin? Well, I'd taken it before. I'd had like, you know, I'd had like 10 surgeries or so. And so the, they gave you this drug after every surgery. Um, and it worked, right? You know, it took away that physical pain. And so I knew it worked, but uh, I, was in, I was in Vegas for a fight. You know, a guy, an uh, acquaintance of mine offered me some Vicodin. I mixed it with the alcohol. I was going to go to parties. Well, this is how it kind of all started, right? The MC of the event uh, announces celebrities in the audience. And, uh, you know, they announced like, Tiger Woods and Charles Barkley and Dr. Dre and, and then, you know, other, other, you know, other sports stars or whatever. And they announced my name and uh, everybody had been applauding everybody else, but my name got called in the whole like MGM grand booed and hissed. And uh, it's not like that hadn't happened before, right? You, you're, you play in the NFL, you go on the road, but you just, you're wearing like armor, you got a helmet and shoulder pads and it's kind of an, emboldens you in fact you can go out and play your ass off and shut them all down you, i mean you really can't do anything at a fight or in public you just take it and it's embarrassing and you want to hide and uh in my attic my attic mind heard uh, not only are you a terrible football player but you are a uh, horrible human being that's that's how i heard it and so i got offered some bike in that night uh, where i was going to go to parties where there were hall of famers and Super Bowl champions and things like that. And I always felt judged and less than and like I didn't belong. And I took the Vicodin with with the alcohol and I walked in and out of those parties and I didn't feel any of that. Felt none of that judgment. I didn't feel any better. Um, you know, I was clinically depressed and this is the way I figured out a way to self-medicate it, just numb it. I think I'd been searching for a way to numb my feelings for a long time. Not just not just in the NFL, but you know all the way back to when I was probably, you know, 13 or 14 years old. Um, you know, my first drug of choice was just competition. Competition let me numb it. 
um, and finding a way to always win and beat you and embarrass you. And that's, that was my numbing. And now I didn't have that anymore. So this, you're always looking for that different way to, to try to fix things. And this was it for me. And it would be my life for like the next eight years searching for that, uh, you know, continuously uh, numbing feeling. So I didn't have to feel the actual feelings that I was feeling. Pro teams have millions to spend and they don't always spend them wisely. But when it comes to a great shave, you don't have to shell out tons of cash. Harry's saw customers getting ripped off by the shaving industry with overpriced, underperforming products and decided to do something better. They found their own way to make beautifully designed razors for a fraction of the price of the other big brands. So you never wonder if you overpaid. Harry's shaving products look great and the weighted handle makes shaving feel great too. I like to keep my beard neat and Harry's always leaves me with a smooth yet crisp shave. Harry's quality is top notch thanks to German engineered blades made in their own factory that stay sharp longer. You can get a five blade razor, weighted handle, foaming shave gel, and a travel cover for just three bucks at harrys.com slash bluewire. And Harry's has the highest customer satisfaction in the shaving industry, plus a convenient subscription option that you can cancel at any time. Getting the best doesn't mean spending the most when you shave with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com slash bluewire. That's harrys.com slash bluewire for a $3 trial set. Time for a quick break to tell you about a couple of our sponsors. The first is Greens Plus, a leader since 1989 known for creating the first ever blended green superfood powder and the first company to infuse that green superfood powder into a bar. Greens Plus bars and powders are the best tasting, most effective way to improve your immunity, detox your body, boost your energy, and get that nutritional insurance that your body needs from organic, gluten-free, premium green superfoods. You can get it at Whole Foods, Amazon, or greensplus.com. We're going to give you free shipping and 20% off today if you use the promo code HELLY. That's greensplus.com. Also wanted to tell you about VACO. That's V-A-C-O. At VACO, they invest in your career, so you are here for the duration of theirs. VACO is a premier talent and solutions firm that provides boutique-level service with global reach in the areas of consulting, consultative project resources, executive search, permanent placement, and strategic staffing. Areas of expertise include C-suite search, accounting, finance, technology, healthcare IT, operations, administration, and international managed services. Founded by my good buddy, Brian Waller, and a couple of his friends. In 2002, Vaco has grown to serve over 40 markets across the globe. They have 1,000 employees, 5,000 consultants, and $750 million in revenue. Check them out at Vaco.com. That's V-A-C-O.com for more info on how Vaco connects people to their dream jobs and helps leading companies find talent to grow their businesses. And so for part of that eight years, you were you were an assistant coach at, at West Texas A&M and you were taking some of the drugs from the players, right? That had been subs- yep. uh, prescribed to them. And, um, and then you're back in Montana and you had some... Well, no, I, I, when, when everything, when everything happened in Texas, you know, my family reached out, um, we got into treatments. First time I'd ever even thought about that. Like I had a, like I had a problem. Um, I got to address some issues. 
things of that nature. It was really, really helpful. But of course, there's consequences to your action. There was criminal consequences because I took them from kids who right. looked up to me and, and respected me and trusted me. And I, and I took advantage of that. And um, so I had to pay those consequences, which was, you know, uh, probation and fine. And, and I ended up back in my hometown in Montana which was just the worst possible decision on my part because my hometown hates me and, um, and I don't like it as, as I don't like it much either. Um, and so the ton of judgment there thought I could get through it. Um, and I was doing a decent job, but I got diagnosed with a brain tumor, um, out of nowhere. And I went and had the surgery and then I had to do a bunch of radiation cause it was attached to my brainstem and they couldn't cut it all out. And I was miserable, right? You know, a few weeks in the radiation, I'm losing my hair. I'm sick, um, you know, and the doctor could tell. And he, he offered to prescribe some painkillers. And I didn't tell him I had a history. I think I was like 18 months sober at the time. And I didn't tell him I had a history with it because I thought I was like everybody else and deserved it, just like everybody else going through this type of thing. But I'm not, you know, uh, I'm a drug addict and I can't, I can't do that. Um, left to my own devices and, and he prescribed him December 1st, 2011. And I told myself when I get back home to Montana after the, res uh, after the um, radiation, you know, I'll stop them and everything like that. He, he prescribed him December 1st, 2011 by March 30th, 2012. So literally four months uh, I was in prison cell for, for good. So it took four months for that all to evaporate and uh, completely tear my life down. 32 months you spent in jail in uh, yeah. 2012 to 2014. What was that like? Uh, adult daycare. Um, it's not a deterrent. Um, you know, watched you on NFL Red Zone. Um, or we had that on our little TV at the end of yeah. our bed. Um, it's not. It's not a deterrent. It's the reason why this country is the most heavily populated prison system in the world. Um, it just is. You know, I don't have any responsibilities. It's it's a miserable place to be with some of the most miserable um, possible people you can imagine. But you know, it, you know, it was almost a relief. Um, I I couldn't use, but I also was just you know inside my own head without any actual rehabilitation to my my cognitive thinking or behavior or anything like that. So it was, you know, it was close to three years of just self-loathing, anger, fear, you know, but luckily for me, my higher power, whatever that is, showed up in the form of my roommate and like 27 months in, um, you know, we had a shift in, in the way I started to think and it's built the foundation for where I'm at right now. So for 27 months, like take me through an average day for Ryan Leaf in prison. Um, the first 27 months. Sleep till noon. Um, get up and shower. Go back, lay in bed, watch Around the Horn and PTI and um, Sports Center, and, and then get ready for whatever evening shows I watch. Um, watch those until as late as I could uh, and go to bed. I was clinically depressed. I didn't do anything. I didn't go outside. I went outside twice, ballooned up to like 325 pounds. 
was about to stroke out from high blood pressure. Um, yeah, that was, that was my day. I mean, there's, there's nothing to do in there. I mean, you, I suppose I could have started getting into, um, you know, crime while I was in there. I know some of the guards tried to hustle me because they thought I had money. Um, they wanted to smuggle some drugs into me because they knew I'd pay a lot of money and, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that. I just, I don't know why I was so defeated. I was so depressed, you know, and I wouldn't take any of their drugs. I wouldn't, um, take any of their, uh, you know, psychiatric drugs to try to curb that. Cause I didn't trust any of them or, I mean, it was, it was like mental hell is what it was. Did people, did people challenge you physically? No, man, they, 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 you know, Hey, it was, it was in Montana, right? I was where not only was I a professional football player, but I also was like a criminal too. So like in their world, you know, you know, I checked two boxes that, that put me on a, on a high pedestal. So they just, they all wanted to hear stories. I've, I've learned how to, you know, you know, walks, walk, you know, softly kind of carry a big stick thing. I was a giant in compared to all of them, not only physically, but like, um, so no one really, and I didn't bother anybody, you know, I, I didn't get myself in any trouble. Um, you know, I just, I just kept to myself, you know, mess with the guards a lot. I just thought they were stupid. So I just met, and I thought there was, I just thought they were the worst possible people you can imagine having those jobs on uh, the way they treated, uh, prisoners. Um, so I, that became like my fun. I would mess with them. Um, like how, you know, I, I, I like just mind games with them. Like these new guards just started and they were being taught by what I thought that was a, an older, real racist guy. And they were a couple of black guys. And I told the, the black guys that the, their supervisor had called, called them the N word. And I was just like, I was oh, just trying was to create messing. chaos. Oh, I was just trying to create chaos. Yeah. Um, like you wouldn't believe, I just tried to throw grenades into, into, their world to mess with it. I wouldn't go get my mail. I'd make them delivered to me. Um, like they were my servants or something like that. I mean, I was, I've seen a lot of, <laughs> they've sent, they've sent messages or letters or posted things on social media things. Like I worked in the prison you were at, or I was at the jail you were at and you were a horrible person to us. And, and so I've been able to make amends for that, uh, you know, and say, I, I apologize, but I'm also like, well, you're, you were, you're a horrible person too. So it, right. it just, it was three years that just, I don't, you know, I, I have to remember I was there and I have to remember about it. So I, I don't go back there, but it's, it's just the worst possible thing you can imagine. Well, you were sentenced to seven years. You end up serving 32 months. And after that first 27 months, you said you, that then things started to change. Then there was a new path because of your roommate and it was, it was teaching other inmates how to read. Was that the beginning of the process for you? Yeah. He just, he must've felt comfortable enough being my roommate for a while to confront me one day on my, on my lazy ass, just moping around. And I know mean, I've had, I had many of those come to Jesus moments um, in my life. I don't know why I, listened to him that day I, you know he suggested we do that and I remember going begrudgingly still I mean I was you know I remember walking down the hallway in my red jumpsuit like metaphorically kicking rocks like a little child thinking this is stupid this isn't going to help me 
doesn't even know how important I am. And the irony of all that is like, you know, the guy in the red jumpsuit in a prison still thinks he's important. Um, and then I walked into that room and to the point that I told you a little earlier about another man asking for help in a place where you're supposed to show zero vulnerability. Here are these men who said to me, I need help, Ryan, I can't read. And they're like 50 year old men, can you help me? And I don't think I'd ever heard another man say that in my life. So, you know, my, it shifted my perspective a ton. Now, if I don't go back, like if I just go that day, nothing changes. It's like practice in anything. You, you gotta continue and be consistent. And so I went back, I kept going back and, you know, I was there for a week, then two weeks and three weeks. And before I knew it, I was sleeping better. I was more personable. I was busy with my family. I was having a different, it just, you know, it uh, gave me a different perspective. And, and I figured that I was being of service for the first time in my life to another human being. First time ever. I used to think what I did on Saturdays and Sundays was me being of service, which is, which is silly. It's absolutely uh, an ing ignorant thought. And I knew that it was going to have to be the foundation of who I was when I got out. Otherwise, like nothing was going to change, right? I was just going to be the same guy or I was going to come back or I was going to die. It's just, it's just how it was going to be. And, and that's what kicked it off. And when I walked out, the only two people there to pick me up were my mom and dad, December 3rd, 2012, I'm sorry, 2014. And uh, I had no money. I had no prospects. I had no, you know, like the Disney corporation wasn't there to offer me a job. I had hope. That's all. That's all I had. That was anything tangible. And that's, a, that's fate, period. And that's how it started. And it's just been a gradual wake up every single day, do the next right thing and good things happen. And when they don't, when life happens, I've built the, you know, the equity uh, and have it stored away where I can rely on it and understand the tools that, that it takes to deal with things when life isn't fair, which is a lot. It's a matter of how you deal with it that matters. And so um, it's been a it's been a wonderful journey and it continues every single day. You know, this morning, the same thing up at, you know, 630 and like, what's going to give me the most uh, fuel for my soul, right? Go out for a hike, uh, eat a good breakfast, feel your body differently, meditate, pray, um, talk to somebody who's struggling. That's a big key for me is like making it not about myself, but making it about somebody else. That's, you know, I can, I can never make it about myself again. Everything that happens to me is a result of, of other people. And I think the vibes and the prayers they put out for me. Well, I think there's so many people doing that for you right now. You know, I, I remember Ryan Leaf initially as the Washington state quarterback. I went to Tennessee. I was there when Peyton was there. Um, so I'm like, Oh man, this leaf guy's pretty good. You know, you watch him play. Like he's a little bit smoother than Peyton. Like Peyton's just not the most effortless guy who's ever played the position. He's one of the best. But I remember I'm like, you know, as a Tennessee guy, I wanted Peyton to go number one, but I thought, oh man, this Ryan Leaf guy might end up going number one. So that was my first impression of you. And then the next impression is what happens in the NFL. And then I meet you at NFL Network several years ago and our paths have crossed a handful of times. We never really hung out or anything, but I think a lot of people are like me in that we're rooting for you in every aspect of life and, and love seeing you flourish. Right. But as you said, life still happens. You know, that was it was a, a year ago. Right. You were I was in the desert, I think. And you were Me out too. there and got arrested. And I remember reading that on my phone and I'm like, damn. And it really 
it bummed me out, you know, but that's, that's life. Bummed me out more than anybody. Yeah. I'm, I'm hey, sure. you know, it's, it's life, you know, we're, we're living in a pandemic, you know, of course there's no context to the, the arrest or anything. And, and, uh, and it's definitely a family matter. And we, um, you know, we, we persevered for sure. And what are you supposed to do? You know, you're supposed to fold it all up and call it quits. And I mean, that's all I know anymore. It's just to get up, do the next right thing. Like right. life happens. And when life happens to me, sometimes it's huge news. It just is. And a lot of people don't uh, understand that. I remember telling Anna as the whole thing's unfolding and she's just like, why are they doing this? And I'm like, you need to call our friends and family. I don't want them to hear it on the news. And she's like, it's not going to be on the news. We're in the middle of the desert. It's Memorial Day week. And I said, you didn't know me before, um, before jail or before prison, before all this. When, when shit hits the fan with me, it's, it's freaking everywhere. So this is going to be everywhere in four hours. And so she just didn't, she didn't understand. And, and she, she found out pretty quickly of what it's like to live in, in, the, in the bad times uh, with, with, uh, with Ryan Leaf. And so, um, but, you know, I, I'm no different to the person than I was on May 21st of last year than I was on May 22nd. Nothing, no different, right? I deal with tremendous ups and downs, uh, you know, probably living with CTE, um, because of, of, of my head trauma and, you know, you go about it every single day, the best way you can, just like everybody else, you know, all I do know is I'm going to keep getting back up. There is nothing, you know, this would have been the easiest year for me to pack it in and just say, you know, cause a lot of the things I've built up and built for myself, you know, COVID took away, uh, the arrest took it away, all that stuff. And there are consequences as anything. But all I know is is to get back up and do it again and try to be there for somebody else because I definitely know it's worse for a lot of people than it is for me. My life is great. It's did, there's nothing did, wrong with it. Did the arrest cost you the ESPN job? I don't think so. Um, I still, you know, still under contract. It just I didn't have any games and I refused to travel last year because I got, we have a three three and a half year old and I was yeah. just not till I was fully vaccinated, which will be next. Sunday, which will be good. Um, I'll have that done on Sunday. And, uh, um, you know, things are starting to change a little bit, you know, I'm going to, you know, I'm Nashville and West Virginia next month to speak. Um, you know, Rich has been an unbelievable support, you know, he's Rich Eisen. Yeah, yeah, Rich Eisen has been yeah. an unbelievable support staff. But he also knows me and my family. So he had a personal, he has a person, he had, like he talked to Anna and talked to me and everything like that. So it wasn't just you know, zero context, uh, reading from a, from a, from a paper somewhere, you know? Um, and, uh, yeah, so it, and, and Anna and I are working on some awesome legislation, um, where when, when someone's having a mental health episode and, uh, you need somebody to call, they send a case manager or something like that and not the police, like nine police officers to just, uh, arrest you because they got called. It, it, we're, so we're trying to build legislation around that because all the police did in that moment was exacerbate uh, and make make a make something worse. Right. And because uh, I do, I mean, everybody that's probably dealing with CTE or any side of brain trauma deals with mental health issues all the time. And I, I've not, you know, veered away or, or ran from that at all. That is a constant 
thing that I deal with every single day. Right. And that's luckily for me, um, you know, I have tools and I'm able to address it in a healthy, healthy, positive way. You have your, your RDL show that you, we talked about a little bit earlier. It's three times a week. Um, I thought you did a nice job calling games. I hope you start doing that again. And I've been listening to you on Sirius XM. Is there one, I mean, they're all different, right? I started calling games five or six years ago and I love it. My entire career has been as an anchor, you know, reporter, studio host, but the games are what I'm really passionate about, whether it be football or basketball, been doing some UFC stuff uh, a lot more lately. I like that too. That's something I've had to learn a lot more about because I didn't grow up, you know, fighting. Um, But for you, is there one lane that you would like to accelerate in and do more of? Well, COVID really shut down the speaking part of stuff in, in, in person. I mean, right. you could do it virtually, but my my story is just so much more palpable in the room where I'm looking people in the eye and I, I can see somebody who might be struggling and we can have a connection and, you know, can help, you know, help me and help them. Um, so I, I think that's that's the foundation all the other things were like goals of mine in the broadcasting world and stuff like that. Calling games is probably my favorite thing to do because it's the closest thing to playing them. You prepare all week watching film, talk to coaches, you know, you kind of have a scouting report. But the cool thing about it is, is you, you don't, no one, you don't lose in that game. You go and get to call. Uh, and I got to call some great games my first year. I, my first one I called your alma mater's yeah. ups, upset of, with Georgia State. Um, I called. I, re- the, I remember that one. Unfortunately, <laughs> I called the BYU uh, upset over Boise State. Their only loss that year in Provo. Uh, that was great. Um, you know, I called the Cheese It Bowl with my alma mater against Air Force. It was a real. I mean, there was just. A, I, I called the Sun Belt uh, Championship between Louisiana and, and and Appalachian State, and I mean, just so much fun. I enjoyed it immensely. So I, I did. I missed it last year, but I um, I get it. Um, you know, and, you know, I think the last job I had with them was I was, I covered Jalen Hurts and CD Lamb's pro day for Oklahoma, March 11th and Oklahoma city, Utah jazz game was that night in Oklahoma city when everything kind of fell apart. And I was sitting in the Oklahoma city airport and ESPN's like, all right, go home. And we're going to shut down things for a while. And that's, and that's really the last thing um, I did with ESPN because, you know, the world shut down. Yeah. Well, it's, it's been a, it's been a crazy year, man. I, I, you know, right around that time last year, I had three and a half months and not a whole lot going on. And that's when I started this, the helipod and grew a big beard for the first time in my life. And, you know, I had a lot of time to hang out with the family. Well, I lost, I lost 75 pounds during this pandemic. What? What are you weighing in at right now? Look at my, look at my mugshot from last May and look at me now and you'll be like, Oh my. And it was a big shift when I saw that picture. Cause I was like, I, I do, I look angry and I look bloated. And, and so I made it. So if anything, it may have been the best thing in the world because I just got my, you know, lab results back after, since we started doing these things and it, and they're perfect now. And, uh, you know, I got a three and a half year old. I want to be around forever for him. And, uh, so maybe it was the best thing in the world that happened, you know, maybe I'm grateful for it. You know, no matter what it tore down, maybe it built up something unbelievable for me. Who knows? Well, you're, you're doing great, bro. I'm, as I said, uh, I'm always rooting for you. I really appreciate the time. Um, you know what I'd love? I'd love to call a game with Ryan Leaf one of these days. We got to figure out a way to make that happen. My friend, maybe our crowds will path down, uh, during a game. I'd love that. That'd be the blast. 
That's awesome. All right, listen, uh, the RDL show, where can we see it? YouTube? Yeah, YouTube, uh, Monday, Wednesday, Fridays from noon to one Pacific. Um, just a, you know, usually the open of the show is me kind of just a little monologue about life. And then we kind of get into sports. I got some young guys that are fresh out of communication school who know how to work all the technology that, you know, offer their time to try to make this the best possible, you know, sports show. I, I do think sports brings out all of us together uh, to, to then have, you know, the real and honest conversations. I really do. So that's what we do. Um, I got a, a neat, um, a neat podcast launching here probably in the next month or two um, with Kevin Connolly's company, uh, Action Park Media. That should be announced here here shortly. That one's going to be a good one. That's that's going to be um, a straight testimonial. It's just going to be my story in podcast wow. form. We're calling it Bust, and uh, and uh, I'm looking forward to that and, and how how pe- how we can help people with that. <laughs> Are you, are you going to be reading, are you going to write a script for that and then read it? Or are you just going to talk? No, I just, I just talked for like 38 hours and we have it. um, Now we're just going through the editing process. It's just me raw like this. Wow. And uh, it's going to be professionally done. You know how we're going to use archival things and stuff when we talk about the past. Right. And everything like that. But I think it's going to be incredibly powerful. I think we're going to be able to help a lot of people. And, um, and it was incredibly therapeutic for me, for sure. 38 hours. <laughs> How many episodes is that going to be? Probably going to try to do 13. And then, uh, and then like season two um, and beyond is going to be, you know, I want to work with, I think we're going to change the name then. And when we head into season two, kind of make it uh, the lighthouse podcast. Um my uh, my sponsor uses Lighthouse as a metaphor. He's like, once you find this peace and serenity and acceptance, you become a lighthouse of sorts. And you don't you don't see lighthouses running around the harbor looking for boats. They are firmly implanted in the rocks, shining a light for boats that are adrift that need help in a safe harbor. And so, uh, and that's what the hopefully second and third and fourth and fifth and how many seasons we do after that with, you know, current or former athletes who may have not lived up to the expectations, um, maybe some that are still struggling that we're going to try to help. And then, you know, other genres of sports and, and the world, just kind of a, a, a lighthouse podcast where people can go to and, um, you know, feel better, talk about the important things. So that's, that's, that's what we're going to try to do here. Uh, in the next few months, we're going to try to launch right around the draft, of course, just because it, it's fitting, you know? Sure. Um, but, uh, you know, we want to make it the cool thing about it is we can make it as good as we want because it's ours. Well, so he's coming to every major podcast platform near you at some point in the very near future. Uh, Ryan Leaf, you can find him uh, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, the RDL show on YouTube. Hey, buddy, thanks, man. I really appreciate the time. That's the most valuable thing you can give somebody is, you know, the time and attention. And we had it from you for for an hour here. So I really appreciate it. You bet. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. Talk to you soon, man.